Hey, this is Bob Lee, and you're listening to Over the Ball with Kevin Flynn, the world's game from an American perspective. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Over the Ball with Kevin Flynn, joined today by the OTB dynamic duo, media executive Grail Hallett, and Syria Ah expert and OTB producer Sam Griswold. I hope everyone had a great Thanksgiving and spent the year, um, I don't know, it's an off year, but uh, hopefully you spent it wisely and safely. Um, what Grail did was he just got a big bag of Taco Bell and sat in his underwear on the couch. That must have been a good Thanksgiving for you, Grail. Uh, Sam, I don't know what you did. But today on OTB, uh, we get to talk to uh, one of our favorites here on the show, Grant Wall. He's uh, the host of his own podcast called Football with Grant Wall. And Grant has a new special podcast series coming up on Freddie Adu. We talked about it last time he was on the show. It's a really interesting story. And boy, he really gets down to the nitty gritty and, and uh, takes us through the journey that was Freddie Adu's career. A career which apparently at 31 years old, from 14 to 31 years old, is still going. Uh, we're also going to talk about the passing of one of the game's greats, if not the greatest, the GOAT, uh, Diego Maradona. Um, we'll get you caught up in some Champions League stuff, MLS playoffs, a lot more. So Guys, before we get going on all of this, I usually ask you what you're over today on Over the Ball, but in the spirit of Thanksgiving, my favorite holiday, by the way, what are you thankful for this holiday season? Grail? Um, I'm just thankful for being healthy. I mean, I got to be honest with you. I do. There's so many other people that haven't been as fortunate. And, uh, you know, yes, I love soccer. I'm thankful that sports are going on and all that. But honestly, I'm just, uh, for my good health and my family, as uh, simplistic as that sounds. That's what I'm thankful for. Ah, that's fantastic, man. Yep. That's, a, that's a go-to one. Sam, what are you thankful for? Yeah, I hope this isn't too cheesy, but I, I'm in general just over the power of sports to move people. Um, you know, whatever you think of Diego Maradona, there's just no denying the emotional impact he had on people all over mm -hmm. the world, as we're seeing from this sort of outpouring of grief and, and love. Uh, just a quick story. I remember I worked one summer at a bank and there was an Argentine guy older than me who'd grown up, you know, watching Maradona, which I didn't, but, um, you know, he wanted to, he wanted to show me this video of him and he couldn't even like he was tearing up. He couldn't even watch right. this old video. Um, you know, had to send me over to my desk to watch it on his own. So, you know, I think it's pretty powerful. I was at a wedding in February um, of last year and the same thing, an Argentine was there. Uh, they live in Spain. He was a friend of uh, an old, uh, actually an old girlfriend of mine. And, but he, the way he started to talk about Maradona, she walks away. She goes, oh, Maradona again. She, he, walks, he was starting to tear up as well, just saying, it was so thankful that I, had, I appreciated Maradona here in America. He was like, oh, my God. And he went on and on. So it's, you're right. The, the impact that, uh, that he had on people was, was uh, pretty pretty amazing. I just want to give thanks. Yeah. For, for kind of both of what you guys talked about. Look, we do a little sports show here and um, this game more than any other, I think uh, brings in all kinds of cultures and uh, you know, we get to know so much more about the world and what's going on the big world out there because we played this game. But when you see some of the things that are going on right now at the level of the pandemic and people aren't working and people are hungry um, you know, you just, and then people who are okay, but are just asked to not gather in big groups um, with their families. I think in many ways, almost like my father used to have a theory that the further away we got from World War II, the more people just took life and everything for granted, where people coming after World War II were like thankful to have a roof over your house and education and food. And now I somehow feel like we're, we're heading towards that a little bit, which like there's the, really the have and the have nots. And so, um, you know, 
sports do play a big part in our lives, but boy, there are more important things than sports. Um, uh, and that why any child should go hungry in America is really um, a terrible thing. And so let's remember that in, on days like today. So, uh, so good stuff, guys. So let's, let's talk a little bit about Maradona and the greatness that he was. We'll, we'll talk to Grant Wall a little later on in the show about it, but um, what are your thoughts and experiences? Sam, you, you didn't see him play. You were uh, an embryo at that time, I would imagine, <laughs> uh, a glint in your mom's eye. But um, what are your thoughts on Maradona? Uh, you, you shared a little bit of them, but um, you must have watched yeah. him play a little bit. Well, I actually, I never saw him play a live game. I mean, I, I think like a lot of people of my milieu and, you know, my age group when growing up in Boston. Better um, translate that for uh, milieu. Better wow. translate that, that for Flinny. That's a, bit, that's a big one, Sam. I like uh, real milieu. Anyway, <laughs> in my orbit. Um, at that time, um, you know, I first heard of Maradona when he came to play in the World Cup in 94, um, especially mm-hmm. because um, Argentina were playing in Foxborough um, outside of Boston. So, you know, the Globe, the Globe was doing a bunch of stories on him. But, you know, I mean, to be honest, I was 10 years old then and I, I just I had no concept of what international soccer was. I mean, you right. know, there was no pro league at that time. There was no way of watching these leagues on TV. I mean, I just knew nothing. Um, so I sort of have experienced Maradona as this, this legend, you know, and someone I never sort of saw as a contemporary, you know, never saw really playing. So I don't know, to me, he's always kind of had this like godlike, otherworldly status. Um, and yeah, so that's my personal experience. Um, I do remember my my coach, my youth soccer coach, was an Italian, and he always used to tell me I wasn't Maradona when I tried to do a pass with the outside of my foot. Um, so, <laughs> don't you love uh, that with coaches? The legend lived on there. But um, speaking of that, you know, I remember when we discussed the uh, the Maradona documentary on HBO. I was the one thing I sort of contested or wasn't sure about was the the sort of image of him being run out of town in Naples uh, and the whole city turning on him because he is still just so revered there Um, in Italy in general. I mean, you should see the, you know, the Italian sports, you know, websites right now. It's just story after story after story of Maradona. You know, while, while there's champions league games going on with Italian teams, the first 20 stories are about Maradona. Um, And you know what he did at Naples, um, for Napoli, it's just incredible. I mean, there are only two Scudettos ever. I mean, no team from the south of Italy had ever won before he got there. Uh, and, you know, the scenes, I don't know if you guys have seen any of the images around Naples. They're going to rename the stadium after him. I mean, so clearly he's, you know, has godlike status there too. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah, you know, Grant Wall wrote an obituary. We're going to talk to him in a little bit. But one of the things he said is, you know, in basketball, 5v5, it's easier to be a dominant player um, mm-hmm. when there's only 10 people on the court as opposed to 22 in a soccer field. But for some reason, Maradona was able to have these bursts of, of brilliance that would just basically, you know, put the game away or win the game. Grail, what are your thoughts? Yeah, well, I mean, Flinny, you and I have spent many years talking about Maradona. And, and this has caused me to reflect, actually, because... The HBO special really started changing my mind, my impression of him. I, I had a much more sympathetic impression right. of him than I had previously. And, um, you know, I've just been so just stuck on the whole hand of God thing as an England fan. And it's a, like, I haven't been able to get beyond it. And now that he's passed, I think I'm just willing to let it go and say, hey, the guy, I've been keeping him off my Mount Rushmore 
you know, just out of spite for what I thought was just an egregious, unprofessional act in a game. And I'm, I'm at the point now where I'm just like, you know, give the guy his due. He had, he yes. struggled for so long. He had, the, you know, the demons of addiction. Uh, he never totally put them behind him. It robbed him of his career. It wasn't like he took steroids or something to enhance his career. Everything he did hurt his performance. And still, he was amazing. So, uh, so at this point, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to turn the page and give the guy his due. I think he needs yeah. to be put up there. You know, I've been resisting for so long. It, okay, he did something egregious in a match, and and that can't be forgotten. But, yeah, but everything you know, but, else. But even to, the hand of God thing, Grail, yeah. I, I always said that it, it didn't hurt anyone, and it was one of those things that guys do in a Sunday pickup league, and we yeah. all like, yeah, well, the ball wasn't going to – he wasn't going to head it anyway. So, And then it's a handball and gets a yellow card, and it goes the other way. It's like yeah. not like some of the brutal tackles that people were giving each other where I really see try, trying to break someone's leg or something – um, I think he just did a kind of a foolish thing. And I've, I see it happen, you know, in games all the time where just someone's like, what, what are you doing there? You know, yeah. and he just did it and he got away with it. And then the ball goes in. Uh, and what do you do? What and do you that, do? Yeah. And that was also been my battle, Flinny, is people apologizing for it and saying, hey, Grail, he got away with it. So, so it was OK, which is so fundamentally opposite to how I look at things. But again, I'm willing to just park that off to the side and look at the the player and you just can't argue against that that second goal that he scored in that match four minutes after the hand of god is probably the greatest goal ever scored in soccer to me well the uh, the english were a bit in a daze at that point they were still arguing the first goal so yeah uh, you know my my thoughts and i think i've talked to you guys about this before the summer i spent in anderlicht i was we went to a game it was anderlicht was playing barcelona and it was in 1983 and something had just happened i forget what happened i think he was I think, because I think he got in trouble in Barcelona. For yeah, he did. And I forget what it was, but there was some big controversy there. And when he came out of the tunnel, everyone booed. Everyone booed. And um, so they, they boo, and he comes out, and he's juggling the ball. And his shoelaces are untied, like usual. Like, that was his pre- and, – and soccer players, you know, you tighten your shoes so much that – you know, you, you don't want them on there much longer than they have to be. But he came out and he went right down the, the mid, middle line, right, juggling the ball and juggling the whole way, right, <laughs> just casually, dun, 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 right down the line. He got to the center circle. He popped the ball up over his head, turned, went towards the goal. While the ball's still in the air, it came down, it landed on his heel. He popped it back up over his head again and just in strides kept started walking towards the goal the place went from booing him to going crazy mm-hmm. he had won them over with sheer skill and that's what i love about this game yeah where, you know people just like love the fact that y- you can play the game the beauty of this game and so there it is they we went from feast to famine in everyone's eyes just it was it was just an amazing an amazing display so um you, you know. guys have a sports figure? Sorry, if, if you're, yeah. I don't know if you're done, Kevin, but is there a sports figure in your guys' sort of world who you would react the way some people are to their passing or to their I think retiring? Pele. I think Pele for me. I mean, I was just always a, just a Pele. Not I saw him, I moved to England in 1970 at age 10, and I watched the World Cup. That was uh, Pele's, that was a huge World Cup for Brazil. They won. They, uh, Pele had a phenomenal World Cup. And uh, I've always put him on a pedestal. So if Pele died, I mean, Pele, Muhammad Ali, 
like those are in my pantheon of sports figures. Mm-hmm. So if, if Pele died, I would kind of feel that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, don't, funny? No. I, I mean, I, I had my Joe Namath and, yeah. and Bobby Orr, um, you know, guys and, and, you know, and I, I got to meet both of them. So it was just like, um, you know, I feel very fortunate. Joe Namath, I had a great, you know, interaction with, but we were in the steam bath and, uh, okay. <laughs> I talked about that. No, was that's, a, that's a, for a, a different podcast. Yeah, but no, but it was a celebrity golf tournament. And if I'm performing at the golf tournament, I'm one of the celebrities, which is crazy because all these people are recognizable. And then, you know, it, so I'll work on a Friday night, do stand up after dinner or something. But on Thursday, when you get there, everybody's like, they're all driving out in the golf cart, like, hey, who's our celebrity? I'm like, uh, it's me. And I'm like, who the <laughs> hell are you? <laughs> so anyway, I did a little workout, went in the steam bath, and there was Joe Namath. But um, you talk about someone who, you know, and I, I read, I had had read uh, Joe Namath's biography and he did transcend the sport at the time. He said, look, I'm the, I'm the game, pay me. They come to see us play and it used to be wealthy owners. And so I think there's some parallels between that and Maradona where he was sort of mm-hmm. like, he was a man of the people, mm-hmm. you know, and he believed in social justice. And, you know, you, you talk about Napoli is a tough town, uh, Sam, as mm-hmm. you've mentioned before. And, and he went down there, which was against everybody's advice and brought that team, pulled them up by the by the bootstraps, and just and made them win. But the downside was he had no life. He, he destroyed himself. Life. I mean, he got. Yeah, that's he, where, he was yeah. in the Michael Jackson mode, where yeah. you can't go anywhere or do anything. And they really showed that in the HBO special. Yeah. So, all right. Yeah. So we should move on. We could talk about him forever. Um, you were one of the greats. But uh, guys, if you watch the Champions League, let's do a quick wrap up of that because we got to keep moving. I want to talk to Grant. Yeah, I mean, it just feels like, you know, the, the, the teams that we expect to be moving forward are moving forward. I didn't think there were any... Liverpool. You know, huge, huge... Atalanta. Uh, huge surprises. I mean, you know, you've got Man City, Barca, you got the big teams. I know Sam and I have a little debate on this. Like, I like the big teams to keep moving forward yeah. because I like those confrontations. I, I want the best and the biggest to be in there. But I was very happy for uh, Serginio Dest to score his first goal for Barca. That was certainly a highlight. They looked, uh, they cruised. They didn't, Messi didn't, Coleman rested Messi and Dijon, so they didn't even have their best team out there. And uh, it was just really nice to see him. So that was one of the highlights for me was just seeing him score his first Barca goal. It's a big deal. Yeah, the only, the only game I checked out was the uh, Liverpool-Atalanta game, which was a, a huge historic win for Atalanta 2-0, yeah. uh, which very, very Atalanta-like to lose 5-0 to Liverpool two weeks before or a week before and then come back and beat them 2-0, very much in their character. Uh, mm-hmm. But not, not a very exciting game. I mean, Liverpool yeah. were without their two wingbacks, uh, Alexander-Arnold and... Uh, Sorry, the Scottish guy, Robertson, Robertson yeah, only came on like mid second half, and you could really see like how different a team they are without those guys. Uh, they're also without Van Dyke. I, I know they they just seem tired. They weren't moving the ball quickly, and it. Uh, I, I wish I was more excited about it, but it um, yeah. just wasn't a great game. There was no. It didn't have any rhythm, and if the one thing you notice about Liverpool is coming out of the back, there's a calmness there where you know, especially if it's you know the their basic back four, which were, were Van Dyke and maybe Gomez and then Robertson and, and um, Arnold on the outsides, where when it went to the outside backs here in this situation with the two young guys that they had, Nico uh, Williams, I think, and I forget the other guy, but it just, there wasn't any confidence there. 
So yeah. it, they didn't go forward. It was a playing it back and square. And, and Atalanta, they played really well. And, I, and they, finished their, they finished their opportunities. So um, I thought they were well coached. They, they, I thought they had a bit of rhythm. Sam. Yeah, I mean, no, they they played well. They played their game. I mean, it's, you know, they they sometimes deliberate, you know, work the ball really well. And, uh, you know, two goals were really nice. Um, It was fun to watch with the British commentators because I'm just always amazed at, you know, how much pace and speed is sort of everything in the English mindset. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, they were criticizing Liverpool for being too slow. You know, they were saying that they they should have taken off Josip Ilicic because he wasn't fast enough. Uh, to play against Liverpool back line, they didn't, then he ended up scoring. Um, so I don't know. That's always funny to me to hear. Yeah, yeah. The speed and power. I mean, even like to to go back to Maradona. One of the things about him was, you know, he would would melt out of a game. You wouldn't see him for a little bit, and all of a sudden, this sparkling burst of energy, you know, would happen. So I think, you know, to play the game at a full tilt all the time, uh, like the Premier League does so often, especially the lower tier teams, um, you know. Maybe It'll be interesting to see who can develop that consistency between league play and Champions League. It's just going to be such a slog over the next six months. Just uh, very, very difficult to keep people fit, too. That's the other thing is you're just going to have more injuries. You're going to end Klopp kind of address that in a post-game interview. Yeah, talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so last, last weekend he kind of went off. He almost like he was weirdly – kind of attacking the guy that was interviewing him who just represents that I can't remember if the guy was from Sky or BT Sports, but he's there as a commentator. He's not there <laughs> as the guy who cut the TV deal, you know, to, uh, to enrich all these clubs. And, and Klopp's point was, you know, hey, Sky and BT, they're just scheduling too many games and it's all about the damn TV revenue. And, you know, but, you know, so I, I get his point, but the fact is that all of that revenue gets divided up amongst the clubs with which they can go out and buy players and fund their team and all that stuff. So it's not like, I mean, you, you can't have it both ways. I totally get that they're playing in a ridiculous number of matches, which is why I think they have to go to five subs again. But um, I just thought it was a little naive for Klopp to be attacking the broadcasters who basically, you know, give the team exposure, give them revenue and all sorts of things to make them more successful. Um, yeah, but Grail, so. Grail, look, I, it seems like we as fans would would watch three games a week if we could, and yes. they would show three games a week. And basically, when do you come up against the human body? Like, look, at we, we've been talking about the NCAA and college soccer where we're in college playing three games a week. The body can't take it, and right. you're not even traveling first class. So it's sort of like, um, how far do you push these players? And, um, you know, we, I, we, the NFL had a part at a hard time with sure. adding preseason games and, and, and the body couldn't take it, you know, yeah, and, I, and this I, look, soccer, I, the season's a lot longer. I, I hear, I get both sides of it. Funny. I just yeah. thought it was, it just for an intelligent guy like Klopp. I mean, for him to be attacking the guy who's interviewing, not attacking, that's a little bit heavy handed, but, but anyway, I just, again, we're in a situation that's very unique and there are going to be pressures all over the place. And they're trying, I think also to get the games in because they're probably worried that there might be another shutdown at some point. Yeah. Yeah. And again, and then what, you know, what shuts down the, the human body injuries. Down, I mean, so. people like Christian Pulisic are just going to have a hard time staying on the pitch. You know, that's the, that's the downside. 
Right. Um, EPL quickly, anything you guys want to go over on that? Yeah. I mean, I just, you know, I just, uh, that one thing I thought it was interesting, Pep, you know, there'd been the speculation is Pep going to stay with city. He resigned through 2023. Well, is that, is that, Predicated on the messy deal? Was that like a, a... Well, no, I just think, you know, he was leaving it open-ended on what his intentions were. And then people were speculating that maybe he was going to move on to another place. But, um, yeah, he's going to be around. I think it's great because I just love the kind of Pep-Klopp rivalry. Yeah. And, it and raises the bar. Teams. It raises the bar, but he... he... He needs to win a Champions League there. Yeah, yeah, he does. I mean, he's won. He's won a lot more. He's obviously won a lot more league titles than Klopp. Klopp's only won one. But uh, yeah, so I I thought that was an interesting story. And then obviously Spurs taking over first place. Who would have ever thought Spurs would be in first place at this stage of the season? And they they beat Man City two nil. And and Mourinho outcoached Pep. I mean, yeah, and Deli like, Alley's sitting on the bench, and so's Bale. Well, Deli Alley's yeah. not even on the bench; he's not even in the eighteen. No, no, he's gonna get he's gonna yeah. get moved he's somewhere. Gone. But uh, he, yeah, well, I, again, I, I, like Sam was saying, like you know, it's the the unpredictability of everything. I, I think it makes it interesting, though. I just think you just can't from week to week say who's the be- the best team. Oh, that's good. That's yeah, yeah, it is good. It just it reminds yeah. me a little bit of, you know, I don't really follow the NFL very closely anymore, but when I did, I mean, it reminds me of you know, like some running back would tear an ACL and all of a sudden like the whole league picture would shift and sure. mm-hmm. it's a little weird cuz you don't want to be psyched that this guy got injured. And I feel like that's a little bit like what we're living right now. Yeah, it's exciting that it's close and weird, but it's, you know, the reason for it is maybe not the greatest. Um, that being said, I, and I have not watched the Premier League game all season. Um, are you guys concerned about Man City being in 13th place right now or, you know, basically at the quarter pole of the season? Eight I'm, points off the top of the table. That's actually not that yeah, many. Yeah, I'm concerned, Sam, about their inability to score because when, when they're playing their best, they score goals in bunches and they've got, you know, Sterling tapping it in from the six yard box on a De Bruyne feed. That's my vision of them when they're going. I think they really miss David Silva. You know, yes, I don't. That's what people, I see the most. And that's Aguero, the, the, obviously. the connective tissue that he provided is missed, and uh, and Aguero just being healthy and scoring goals because I just don't think Jesus and Sterling are as good as Aguero when Aguero's really fit. So I, I think that it's going to be fine, Sam, over the course of the season, but they just are not looking as good as they did mm-hmm. um, a season ago, two, two seasons ago, certainly. All right, let's, uh, let's move on to domestic stuff before we bring on Grant. Um, I, you know, I thought this was interesting. Jazzy's artist has played for Columbus. Is, um, it's going to be tough for Berhalter to ignore. He's got uh, what scored 12 goals in league play this season. What are your thoughts on that, guys? Sam? Uh, yeah. I mean, certainly the U.S. looked like they are lacking a target striker um, in mm. the games that we saw. I mean, a couple yeah. of those young kids scored some nice goals, but I, I don't know. I don't really feel like they can play that target role. I mean, if they want to play sort of like a, a looser attack, not not quite a false nine, but guys that are more mobile and moving around, I mean, that's one thing. But I don't know. It seems like someone needs to to – provide a reference point up there so I think they will go with a target striker and I, yeah I don't see how you can at least you know not consider Zardes at this point yeah I like totally agree because the Altidore too I mean the old like you know the one's more fleet of foot and the other can hold up a little better but uh, I think that's our one glaring uh, weakness so far yeah, especially when we mark. start playing really good teams if you, if you don't have a quality number nine it's you're not going to score I mean, that's going to be the problem. I mean, so, 
Anyway, they look good against Panama, but as I explained to some of my friends, you know, it, not to disrespect Panama, but it's Panama. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not. You're yeah, but not, look, look, as I said last week, you, you know, we struggled with Panama at times. Yeah, no, I, I, I know. But I, I, again, I'd like to see like a real measure. They've whales in Panama aren't the ultimate yeah. measuring sticks, I don't think. All right. And I want to give a shout out to, to our friend, your former teammate, uh, Grail, um, one of the top soccer coaches in the country, uh, yeah. for sure. Uh, Clemson Tigers, uh, Mike Noonan. Uh, the Tigers beat Pitt 2-1 to capture their 15th ACC title. So in a, in a crazy year, uh, yeah. you know, we know Noonan for a long time. He's one of my old roommates on the road and uh, nobody works harder than that boy. Uh, and he's still doing it uh, here in his fifties. Uh, one of the smartest guys we we knew in college, and uh, he's gone on to do these great things. And yeah, I, I just think it's an incredible accomplishment given the weirdness of this season. I mean, and kudos to the players first and foremost. Yeah, you know, but I think um, the consistency that he's had with the team—it's yeah. it's, it's pretty amazing. I, and I I haven't talked to Mike about this at all, but I'm still surprised. That and I think he really loves Clemson. He loves being down there. He's a golfer, yeah. you know. Um, but I, I am surprised he has not been pulled into MLS because he he knows the American player. He knows foreign players. He melds these guys into a team every year. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's bizarre to me. It's bizarre to yeah. me how it ha- hasn't happened. So uh, anyway, so congrats to Mike Noonan and the Clemson Tigers uh, in this really bizarre year. But the ACC, that's the real deal. That is the yes. real deal of that league. So uh, everybody, every kid I talk to now that wants to play Division One is like, they all want to play in the ACC. And I'm like, okay, well, good luck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take a lot of something. All right, guys, let's take a quick break here and come back with Grant Wall. He is the host of uh, a really a great podcast that we all listen to, Football with Grant Wall. So you're listening to Over the Ball, another great podcast. Stick around. Over the Ball is brought to you by Soccer America. Go to SoccerAmerica.com slash join and sign up for the Soccer America Pro Membership. It's just $4.90 a month or $49 a year. And buy Ticket IQ, the simplest and cheapest way to buy tickets. Go to TicketIQ.com and when it asks for the promo code, punch in OTB10 for $10 off of your purchase. Can't lose. All right, joining us now on Over the Ball, one of the top voices in our beautiful game here in the United States. He is the host of Football with Grant Wall. Grant Wall, welcome back to Over the Ball, man. How are you? Doing well. How are you guys? We're good. We're good. We're, uh, we're giving thanks, as we should, during this uh, crazy year and also just this crazy corona year. Just want to give a shout out to your wife as well. She's a doctor who's giving us all kinds of great information. Um, on CNN nice. and now with the Biden administration, she's sort of in the, um, in a, an official capacity there. So they're all looking out for our good health. So, um, you know what? I, uh, I'm not a doctor, although I've played one on TV. Um, but, uh, I was not good at science and let's listen to the people who are good at science when we're talking about scientific things. Um, so talking about greatness and maybe the greatest ever, one of them, the passing of Diego Maradona. We talked about it a little bit at the top of the show. Uh, give us some of your thoughts. You wrote a great obituary, but um, you know, what are some of your other personal thoughts as well? I mean, Argentina is my adopted country. I, I think maybe I've said that on previous podcasts with you guys. I spent a lot of time there over the years. And I was there in 2001 for Diego Maradona's testimonial game in La Bombonera, the stadium for Boca Juniors, and wrote an article about it for uh, for Sports Illustrated. It was interesting because for the swimsuit issue, they had a Latin American theme that year. And um, 
I have still never been in a stadium anywhere at any point in my life that was like the stadium that day for Maradona's testimonial and, and just the, the raw uh, soccer passion in that stadium for one person, like the relationship between the people of Argentina to Maradona is unlike anything that's ever existed in sports, I think. And I realize that could sound hyperbolic, but it really is accurate because Argentine culture is fascinating to me. They have a way of making the uh, just a few people into these larger than life figures. And in that realm, I, I link Maradona to Vita Perón, how they view her. Um, figures who grew up poor, who became these global myths in a sense. Mm -hmm. And the Argentine culture has always had a, a, a love for Maradona that was very different than how Brazilians view Pelé. And Pelé, you know, Brazilians love what Pelé did for them, you know, three World Cups, but he's not some sort of godlike figure in Brazil the way Maradona is in Argentina. And so, to be in Argentina many times over the years and get a sense of that feeling they have for Maradona. Like I've been in stadiums. I, I remember going to the River Boca rivalry game in 1994. And the entire Boca side of the stadium was chanting Monado like over and over again during the game. And he wasn't even there that day. Like, <laughs> It, it, it was just yeah. that he has become this symbol there that, you know, the word they keep saying there this week is eternal, you know, eternal. Um, so you think about it in those terms, you think about it in terms of the 1986 World Cup, nobody has ever had a better World Cup than Maradona has. Nobody ever right. will, I, I think. And, and so just to look at those highlights, to to rewatch as I have the documentary that's on HBO by Asif Kapadia that came out last year, which focused on Maradona at the height of his powers, his Napoli years, 86 World Cup, 90 World Cup. And you really do get an idea of how big he was in the sport. And you also get a sense of how tragic it is that that addiction robbed him, robbed us of years that he could have had and didn't. I, I still think it's incredible if you see that movie. Mm -hmm. His Napoli won the Scudetto in 89-90, and he was basically going on a drug bender every week from Sunday through Wednesday, and then detoxing Thursday, Friday, Saturday, playing Sunday, and winning the league in what was the best league in the world at that time. And that's Kind of crazy. Mm -hmm. That was kind of like Grail's career at Middlebury. That was <laughs> college. But you know, you, you you talk about the difference between Maradona and Pelé. The one thing I will say about Pelé, he had more of a quiet dignity about himself, and he he really didn't uh, cater to any controversy. He was very sort of mild mannered and and almost knew his. He knew because I met him a bunch of times, but he kind of knew his uh, effect on people. I think Maradona 
you know, sort of embrace that speak truth to power um, sort of thing. And the, and the little train that could, you know, that's sort of overachieving and tried to be motivational to everyone. But he, you know, you, you mentioned that movie on HBO. What I found so sad was there this, this nice young boy who has uh, this amazing once in a lifetime God-given talent. And when he got to Napoli, he, he surrounded himself with people who could just protect him. And uh, they enabled him and, and he built this, you know, here we all are in a pandemic bubble. He was in that fame bubble because you saw he had that react. People had that reaction, not only in Argentina, so you can't go home. He, they had it in Italy as well. I mean, he couldn't go anywhere. So it's uh, suddenly it's almost like a Michael Jackson thing happens to to you where you're not surrounded by anyone telling you, hey, you got to go to bed, man. You know, um, so. Yeah, I also thought it was that movie did a great job of separating the two forces Diego and then Maradona and they drew the distinction between the two people and the Maradona was the one that just became uncontrollable it was like a, it was like a uh, it was a different person almost that was out of his control but yeah that was a great movie Grant you put him on the one of the tops because look we were we talked about it earlier in the show about the the level of brutality that the game cater to at that point in time you know we t you talk about some of the great ones georgie best and maradona like they just got beat up i mean it was just part of the game back then which some guys like stevie nickel miss i'm like no you know this is it would be like just you know beating up wayne gretzky all the time you know it just doesn't yeah make any sense. yeah i mean when you look at soccer from those days sometimes it feels like a different sport almost mm -hmm. i mean just like the stars were not protected as much uh, you know, when Maradona broke his ankle playing for Barcelona, we see the hit that he took in that, that movie, that documentary. And just over and over again, he had to deal with stuff like that. And it's unfortunate. I mean, like, you know, like Messi and Ronaldo today have had to go, you know, occasionally through some, some tough defending, but nothing on that level. Right. Uh, and, and so... Yeah, it, it's it's incredible that Maradona was able to not be injured more and, and miss more time due to stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Sam? Yeah, Grant, um, in the obit, which, which I really liked, I thought you did a great job giving it an American angle, talking about both Maradona and Pelé's sort of thoughts and reactions to the United States. Um, and I wonder if you could just talk about that a little bit. I mean, it, it sort of gives you an idea of, of how they – they viewed power, right? Where Pele was sort of the more establishment global superstar, the guy who got more endorsement deals, who had a better relationship with FIFA, who came to the United States to play for the New York Cosmos. And Maradona, for his part, viewed the U.S. as the establishment, as part of it. And so had issues with the U.S. A lot of that came down, though, to the United States refusing a visa to Maradona once he had his drug convictions because he simply wasn't allowed in the country. I don't even know, like the last time that Maradona was allowed in the US might've been the 94 World Cup, which he was kicked out of yeah. for a positive doping test. I don't think he was able to visit the US at all for maybe forever again. And, you know, like Pele was viewed as sort of the corporate guy and, and Maradona supported leftist governments and some, you know, more savory characters than others. I mean, like, you know, I, I don't think even lefties in the U.S. think Hugo Chavez in Venezuela or Nicolas Maduro are like 
you know, great guys, but Maradona sure did. Um, and, and so he would, his, his views were sort of simplistic, but they certainly had an influence and they had an influence on politics in Argentina. Uh, you knew who Maradona supported. Um, so yeah, I mean, like he, he definitely stepped outside of the sportsman's role. And even with the Pope, I mean, his controversy with the Pope, he liked Pope Francis and he talked something about coming back to the church because of Francis and his sort of, um, you know, uh, his uh, social justice sort of mantra, the Pope. So um, that was different for him as well. Grail? Yeah. So Grant, with, with his passing, of course, it started the debate anew about the Mount Rushmore of soccer. And I'm just curious what your Mount Rushmore looks like right now. I mean, what I have said this week is that Maradona and Pelé were the two greatest men's soccer players of the 20th century. I don't think people can disagree with that very mm -hmm. easily. Now, that's 20th century. And I do say men's for a reason, because women's soccer is very much uh, deserving of, of having sort of its own, you know, greatest. And so... Uh, I would put Michelle Akers and Marta at the top of that list. Um, mm -hmm. Now, where does Lionel Messi fit in there? Where does Cristiano Ronaldo fit in there? I personally don't think Ronaldo is at the level of Messi. I think he's fantastic. Mm -hmm. I think Messi is a genius. Um, and I think the game has changed from the days of Maradona and Pelé to the point where for me the ultimate arbiter of who's the best modern day today is uefa champions league not the world cup mm -hmm. i th i think it's all the best players are in europe it's an annual competition and i do think it's unfortunate for messi that he has not won a world cup because the second right. he won one i think everyone would have to say that he's in the same breadth on the men's side as pele and maradona I am of the belief that even if Messi never wins a World Cup, he should be in the same breath as, right. as Maradona and Pelé because Messi has won Champions Leagues. And to me, that's, in modern day, how you decide who's the best. I mean, Pelé never played in Europe. So, like, mm -hmm. in his day, like, the, the World Cup had to be the, the, the arena where you measured this right. stuff. Um, so... Like where you like come down on how Messi, where Messi is compared to Pele and Maradona, that's a pretty big debate to have. Mm -hmm. um, I personally feel like, okay, Pele won three World Cups, but um, he barely played in one of those three World Cups because he was hurt and, and did not sort of lord over a world cup ever the way maradona did over 86 right um yeah i mean like it's like you can have this conversation and this mm -hmm. argument for a really long time yeah. i i love all of them uh right. and and i still want to see what messi does in a career that's not over yet you know it's funny the two it's like it's a different time it's a different era as well and you look back romantically and just the you know, the technicolor of Brazil playing in that World Cup, you know, those yellow, you know, yellow canary, yellow shirts and things. It's almost like sometimes I look at it like here we are with American politics. You got George Washington and you got Lincoln and, and no one really quite ever 
steps up to that. You know what I mean? Because you're looking backwards. So um, I think I think the you, something about Ronaldo keeps him off that list. Well, kind of almost everybody's. I don't know what it is, but um, it, it, you know, it's it's just it's funny. It's pretty consistent, even with people who think you know phenomenal player, once in a lifetime player. It's just he's off Mount Rushmore. So um, a, a lot of it is. Uh, you know, you talk about being hurt, Pele being hurt during that World Cup. I mean, the brutality that these guys took on was was just was just unbelievable. So I think even just right there, um, they get some special props. So um, so a guy who's not going to be on Mount Rushmore, um, who really was built up to be maybe one of the next the best things ever. I meant to mention this. I mentioned this in the opening, but um, you have a series now coming up, a podcast, a special uh, series on Freddie Adu. The, uh, the rise and, and fall and the rise and fall and rise and fall of, of, of Freddie Adu. A really interesting subject. I know you were on the show a couple of months ago. We talked about it. So I'm really happy you're, um, you're putting this podcast together. Tell us a little bit about it because two, two of the pieces have come out already. Well, it's a seven-episode podcast series called American Prodigy, Freddie, the Freddie Adu Story. Uh, episodes come out every Tuesday. So I was going to it'll be coming out, I guess, through the, through the new year, basically. And it's a podcast series I've, I've wanted to do for a long time and hadn't been able to do it. Uh, always thought that ESPN would do a 30 for 30 on the Freddie Adu story, and they never did. And Amazing. as a journalist myself, I always try to think in terms of what's, what would be a good 30 for 30? And if, if it hasn't been done, why, why shouldn't I do it? So yeah. oh. that was the approach to this. And so I spent basically the last five months uh, on this project and, and put more time into it than any magazine story uh, or podcast series I've ever done and feel really good about uh, the finished product. It's, um, it's a look at retelling the story, but learning even more and you know, I covered it for Sports Illustrated back in 2003. I did my first magazine story on Freddie, who was 13 at the time, who'd already signed a seven-figure deal with Nike. And I did another magazine story right as he was starting his first season in 2004 as a 14-year-old with DC United. Freddie was doing national TV ad campaigns with Pele, where I had been there that day in Tampa when they filmed that ad, saw them interact. Um, I remember speaking to Phil Knight, who was the CEO, co-founder, or no, founder of Nike, uh, who told me that he thought Freddie could be bigger than Tiger Woods, LeBron James, and Michael Jordan. Unbelievable. In the sense, he felt that Freddie could make his sport bigger in the U.S. than those guys could with their sports, because soccer wasn't as established, in his opinion, at that point. Um, so lots of pressure, obviously, before he had even played a professional game. And and, and reached you know, puberty, for, for God's sakes. I mean, you know, 14 years old, it's, like, it's just, you know, you can't handle this stuff at 21, never mind 14, the poor kid, you know. And though he had a very close family as well, which I think helped. He lived at home. But um, Yeah. No, I mean, like, there, there was. And, you know, I, my first Freddy story was in 2003, and that was a year after – I had done a story on another prodigy, LeBron James, that they put on the cover of Sports Illustrated. All right. And so I, I kind of feel like I was on the prodigy beat back then. And <laughs> as part of this series, a part of it is me sort of looking at my own role uh, in 
this cultural obsession that we have with sports prodigies and right. and talking to Freddie about that, that, you know, that all this media attention, having a 60 minutes story on CBS about him, stories in the New Yorker, Sports Illustrated, ESPN's magazine. Um, and Freddie wasn't able to handle it as well as LeBron did. And that type of attention does change your life. Here's a kid who was born in Ghana, came to the U.S. with his family. They won the immigration lottery when he was seven years old. And then goes from playing soccer at recess to like a week later, leading his team to a club title. They found him uh, in, in the D.C. area. And, and he went off from there. So like it was a, a pretty crazy existence. So that's, you know, the idea behind this series, I talked to interview two dozen people, including Freddie, who turned me down at first for an interview, but eventually changed his mind. And, and we talked at length about his career and he was pretty self introspective about things he wishes he could have done better. Uh, you know, it's funny because in this game, I talk to people who are not into soccer and the names that they remember are inter they always say Pele. And I, I, I remember saying to Mike Waitolo, we had a, we had a beer and we're talking about it. It, it. Like in 1998, I said, Oh my God, if somebody mentions Pele again, so much has happened. There's so many great players. They're just not following the game. All they remember was Pele. One of the other things that the mass market remembers is Freddie Adu. It permeated yeah. into people's consciousness and they always, yeah, whatever happened to that guy, you know, they'll always ask that question. And, and that's uh, that's a ton of pressure. Not, not only speaking about, a 14 year old going to DC United and the feeling that the other players have because he's making more money than them. You know, that's where everything starts to change a little bit. It's like, uh, you know, at least you're playing in college, everybody's making nothing. Um, and you know, you just, you just playing for the love of the game. So what a lot of pressure. And, and at that age, do you think he actually was 14? That was one of the questions that people had asked. Yeah. And, and literally everybody I interviewed, for this series, that was a question I asked. Do you believe he was the age that he said he was? And yeah. and most actually most of them said yes. Uh, people on, on DC United, his teammates said to me, he acted like he was 14, which was frustrating at times. Yeah. Uh, not everybody did though. So that does become uh, a part of, I think episode six, um, where mm -hmm you know, like there's some discussion about that because I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that there have been examples over the years of uh, African countries producing really good soccer players at the youth level and then not panning out at the senior level. Um, the Qataris started this Aspire program uh, where they brought kids from all over Africa and eventually found out through testing that a bunch of the, the kids they picked were not the age they said they were. So 31 year olds. Yeah. You know, you know I mean, it's like it's, little league world series. They used to say the same thing. Uh, you know. Yeah. Well, it's, it, it's tough. Yeah. Grant, I'm just curious from your perspective. Um, what, what role did racism play in Freddie's, the obstacles that were put in front of him, or would it would it have played out differently if Freddie was a thirteen-year-old white prodigy? So episode three uh, is mostly about race. Mm -hmm. So the one coming out this next Tuesday here, and 
I talk at length with a guy named Clint Smith, who is a writer for the Atlantic and an author who played Division One soccer at Davidson and uh, grew up in New Orleans. Was really one of the few young black soccer players in New Orleans. And and Clint wrote an article for the New Yorker a, a few years ago about Freddie Adu, who was the exact same age as Clint. And he talked about what Freddie meant to him growing up. And I didn't think about this much at the time, and, and I should have as I was covering this. Maybe it's because Freddie was born in Africa, so he I didn't think about him as an African-American as much or the impact that he had on the black community in the US. But Clint is so good at talking about how Freddie caused, in his opinion, many more black Americans to watch soccer in a way that they hadn't before. And he compared it to black Americans who started watching golf because of Tiger Woods mm. or tennis because of the Williams sisters. And, mm. and Freddie himself, I asked about, like he didn't realize what he meant to the black community until he did some public appearances in the DC area where black kids told him that they'd never watched soccer before until they saw him play. And then they were into it and wanted to play themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, and especially at that time, I mean, there had been some black players on the U.S. men's national team like Kobe Jones, um, Desmond Armstrong, Ernie Stewart, but there hadn't really been a superstar. And, and so Freddie was this example of that. Um, and, and it became a, a really interesting conversation that became essentially a full episode of, of this series. Good. Cam? Yeah, um, Grant, listening to the first two episodes, which I thought were great, um, I came away with the the overall feeling and sort of question, and you know, I don't want you to reveal too much if you don't want to, but um, I'm curious how much you get the sense that maybe the U.S. as a soccer country was just not ready for someone like Freddie Adu to just sort of show up, like you said, like literally out of nowhere. I don't think the infrastructure was there to, to know what to do with a Freddie Adu. Um, and, and to really protect him because I do feel like Freddie was not protected. The second, whoever signed off on an ad campaign with Freddie Abdu and Pele before he had ever played a pro game, that was not good for Freddie because mm -hmm. right. those ads were on all season long and they set this expectation to the public around the country that this kid was the next Pele. And that's never a good idea because then nothing that kid does is going to be seen as sufficient. And even that first year, Freddie scored five goals. His team won the MLS championship. But even he viewed it as a disappointment because his expectations were not reasonable because mm -hmm. all of this had been created. And so a lot of adults, I think, failed Freddie to do. And Ernie Stewart, who was his teammate with DC United that year, told me that he felt sad, sorry for, for Freddie because he remembered a game they had out against the Colorado Rapids in the Denver area, night game, and they made Freddie Adu stay a couple hours afterward to sign autographs for fans. And 
and Ernie was like, what, what were they doing? Like, yeah. that, that doesn't help. You know, in his opinion, Freddie wasn't allowed to focus on soccer. It was way too much about promotion. And he stopped getting better very quickly. So, yeah, you look at it in those terms, and, and it is frustrating um, about, you know, I compared a little bit to, I don't think MLS was ready for David Beckham when yeah. he came in 2007. The infrastructure wasn't there, and it's interesting to me that the Freddie Adu era of MLS was right before the David Beckham era of MLS. And, and if Freddie had come along today in MLS, I think it would have been a much different deal. But you know, the difference is too, MLS wasn't ready, but David Beckham was ready when he came over. You know, grizzled season pro, had a right. PR nose, right. you know, really played it well. Um, yeah, that's actually one of the other names that people mention when they mention soccer. You know, they don't know what they're talking about here. It's, but, um, so, but he always has come off as a very nice guy, Freddie. I, I always pulled for him, you know, um, and so I hope uh, for the best. Is he still playing now? So Freddie is 31 uh, he has not played professionally since the Las Vegas Lights second division team in 2018. And he just signed with this third tier team in Sweden that starts up this next year. Like when we started doing the interviews, Freddie was very clear. I have not retired. I love this sport. I want to keep playing. And then last month he signed with his team in Sweden. So we'll see how that goes. Um, Look, in some ways, I find this inspirational, right? Mm -hmm. I think one thing I think people will, will get from this series is they may assume that Freddie is this sad story. And he doesn't think he's a sad story. The people who are around him don't think he's a sad story. And there is something inspirational about his love of the game and wanting to keep playing, even if it's for a third-tier team in Sweden. But look, you know, you're, you're sitting here talking to a couple of former players. It's like the experience and the, that that man has had has been unbelievable. MLS Cups and traveled all over the world, can probably speak a couple of languages and um, might even make a good coach one day on the, on the college level or, or in the pros. Who knows? So um, he's played for enough good coaches, played for Bruce for a long time. So, so we'll see. Hey, so one thing we're keeping an eye on, you're, um, you've got some stuff coming up for Sports Illustrated as well. I do. I do. Um, we announced um, about a month ago that I'm going to write three final stories for Sports Illustrated, where I worked for 23 years until earlier this wow. year. Um, and I think it'll be a nice opportunity to, to finish up on you know, positive terms with a place that's you know, really dear to me. I care a lot about Sports Illustrated uh, and the, the tradition and the history of quality. And, you know, these are going to be three long form stories. So they're going to be hopefully stories people remember. And uh, I've still got a lot of friends who were there and, and looking forward to, to getting the writing muscles going again. I used them a little bit for this Freddie Adu series, writing the scripts, but right. I miss, you know, writing is what I, is sort of my natural thing. It's what I've always done. And, and I'm looking forward to, to writing you know, some, some good long magazine stories about interesting topics. Well, we look um, forward to it. We've uh, enjoyed your writing for a long, long time. And some of the books you've written about the, the great game. Uh, Grail, you know Grant from Sports Illustrated. Your days there as well. So um, it, it's great to see that just soccer is pertinent now from the early days when you guys were there. Um, yeah. You probably had a fight 
tooth and nail for every soccer story. And, and now we, uh, well, Grant we, we was, Grant place. was pushing on the edit side. I was pushing on the business side and finally we got somewhere with it, but the long form story in SI was such a huge part of what made that a great place. And Grant and Gary Smith and some of the other writers who kind of perfected that, uh, it's really missed. So um, we're in the middle of MLS uh, playoffs. What are your thoughts of what you've seen so far, uh, Grant? You know, I love the MLS playoffs. And I, I yeah. really like the single elimination for every game format. Uh, it makes for a lot of excitement, a lot of drama. And uh, I, I, you're rewarding the, the regular season performance of the home team. Uh, so like in the past, I, I've been a little down on MLS playoffs just because in the format, it seemed like it made the regular season meaningless. And because you're rewarding that performance now with a single elimination home game, then I think that's better. Um, you know, we've seen teams like Seattle um, for several years now. You know, this league tries to create parity in how they set up everything. And I get why that's the case, but this is still humans playing the game. And right. Seattle has figured out the postseason. They've been in three of the last four finals. They've won two of them. They just beat LAFC convincingly again in the playoffs for the second straight season. And I really like what Brian Schmetzer and Garth Lagerwey have created up there in Seattle. Like, I think Nicholas Ludero really doesn't get enough attention as – a transformational figure in the history of MLS. And I get that he, he's not David Beckham. He didn't have the, uh, the publicity side of things, but he's just a hell of a player who has come to MLS at a time in his career when he could still be very influential. I keep reading these stories about how the number 10 no longer exists in soccer. Nico Lodero is a great number 10. And so like, it's yeah. so much fun just to watch how he moves about the field and impacts a game as much as he does, because he would be able to do that in, in the 1980s, you know, in, in what we've already talked about is sort of a, a different game. Then he kind of reminds me of a, a timeless player. And I, I just really enjoy seeing what he does with that team. They created around him, Jordan Morris, Raul Rui Diaz. That's a tremendous front three that, I think they're, they have a decent shot at winning this again this year. And then I hope people maybe put the, put their historical import in a, in a bit more perspective. Yeah. They've done a great job up there. So, uh, all right. Well, a lot to your busy man in the middle of the pandemic. Um, you, you've got the Freddie Adu seven part series, which is uh, already started. We're two series in, you got some long form um, articles coming up for sports illustrated. What else, you lazy bum? What else you got going? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm hoping to have some announcements to make in the next month, month and a half. Um, you know, like you're pregnant. Trying, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, um, you know, just trying to figure out like the next step uh, for my, like my next full time gig. And right. in the meantime, have been wanting to to do high quality work. Uh, while getting a sense of what this new media landscape is. And, mm -hmm. and maybe that involves a mix of things, um, including, you know, owning my own stuff. Uh, I've done that a little bit already with this Football with Grant Wall podcast, which comes out twice a week. And we've had some really good interviews mm -hmm. on that. Uh, I just interviewed uh, 
uh, two of the stars of Ted Lasso, Jason Sudeikis and Brendan Hunt. And, and that series has actually you know, been a, a real bright spot of a really dismal year of 2020 for a lot of people who aren't even soccer fans or who might be soccer fans. Oh, it's a, it's so, a good heartfelt uh, show. Yeah. I mean. Yeah. So that was fun. And then just, you know, getting other, other interesting guests, you know, there's a lot of excitement around these young U S men's national team players. Like we've mm-hmm. had Serginio Dest, Tyler Adams, Weston McKinney, um, and, and just, you know, you know, Gio Reyna, all those guys. And it was really neat to see them finally get on the field together uh, recently uh, you know, in the U.S. men's national team is finally mm-hmm. playing games again. Well, I tell you what I miss, Grant, I, I, what I miss uh, in a big way. We talked about it last time when you were on about the announcers, even the Champions League, the coverage now, it's all, all foreigners, not a single American on that panel. What I loved about the work that you did with Fox is you were not a former player. You were a journalist. And you got all these stories that other people didn't get. You got the scoop on so many things. You had so many contacts all around the country. I, just, I really miss those little things that you'd pick up. And, and uh, it was a real journalistic feel, but also you're a person who loves the game. And so that came across. And I think that that is really missing. I think, I think we either depend on either foreign talent now or former you know, uh, national team players who, who – try it for two a year or two and then then sort of phase out and you were one of the consistents there so i hope that's on your docket to somehow get back involved because watching nfl football growing up that's what always sort of uh i was enamored with you you wanted to hear from the journalists you know i I just think in general i i hope more and more journalists end up on on television broadcasts of Mm -hmm. soccer in the united states i mean like i i really do enjoy hearing journalists talk amongst each other like i'd love to see a a sports reporters show on soccer where you've got three or four people who covered the game and they don't have to all be american they could be um but to get a a sort of a diverse discussion about the stories in the sport um so you know i'm I'm hopeful we'll we'll want to see you on cbs Let's, let's get you on to CBS, Grant. Come see on. the progression. They, they, though, they, they, they could use you on CBS. I'm, I'm pitching for it right now on this, on this podcast. That's appreciated. <laughs> we'll, we'll see. You know, I think, like, I think CBS is probably starting to see that there's some value. Uh, there you know, could be even more value and bring more Americans into, into their coverage, just as we're seeing more Americans on the field in UAE the champions league sure, than ever absolutely. before like we we have a soccer culture here in the u.s and and there's some really good people who, who i think can bring value to the way the game is presented in the media well, yeah which is not always respected and i think it's amazing you just mentioned we have guys on the field now in europe playing the top teams in the, in the world and yet it's now something that americans did so well sports broadcasting for so long that uh, we're not represented uh not right, was there. I believe that probably the executive producer of the CBS Sports Show is a Brit because they, they look down on Americans big time. So anyway, but that's, that's for another, let's do a seven-part series on that. <laughs> Grant. Hey, Grant Wall, the, the podcast is called Football with Grant Wall. He's got a great, uh, great podcast a series on Freddie Adu. Uh, two are out already, five more to come. Uh, we enjoy so much when you're on Over the Ball. Thanks for joining us, pal. Thanks for having me, guys. Hey, remember to tweet us at Over the Ball, like us on Facebook and Instagram, and write a review. In fact, make us one of your favorites. It makes a big difference. Always great catching up with Grant Wall. I, uh, 
I'm going to listen to that series. I just want to kind of just slam it, like watching Ted Lasso. Just watch them all in like one weekend. You've listened to two already, right, Sam? Yeah, I've checked out the first two that are out. Um, definitely going to check out the whole series. And it's, yeah, it's, you know, the, my main takeaways are how non-bitter um, Freddie Adu sounds mm. uh, in his interviews. He's, you know, very open, very, sounds very happy to discuss this whole thing, which was a little bit strange. Um, That's great. But, you know, it, do, it does, you know, it's in listening to it, it's a little, you're, you're sort of waiting for it all to go wrong, um, mm-hmm. which it's sort of this investigation at the same time as to what, what didn't go right. So it's like the old behind the music videos, you know, the quarter of the hour. Oh, God. Yeah, yeah, a little bit, yeah. Happen, you know, but and then uh, the, well, the you drummer, know. the drummer lost his arm. Right. right. <laughs> but, but, you know, Grant talked about that a little bit about how, yeah. about he's been a success and he really has. Yeah. I mean, you and I, and, and we'd all be like so excited to have had that career. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, we got to put it all in perspective. And I think what, what basically Grant was talking about was they mismanaged expectations with that poor kid. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it's a lot of pressure to put on somebody. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. so good stuff. All right, guys. So, uh, what do you want to talk about before we get going here? So, uh, I, oh, you know what? You know what? Here, one other thing though. He mentioned the third episode, which is coming up, is about basically race. Yes. And I know Gra- Grail. That's but, always one of your your subjects. Yeah, I mean, I, I read in the Athletic that the uh, fantasy Premier League, the FPL, is having a hard time just. Uh, you know, dealing with blatantly racist, homophobic, sexist, and anti-Semitic uh, names, team team names that are affiliated, that are essentially, you know, participating in the fantasy league. And uh, I mean, to give you a sense, 130 team names include the N-word. And I'm like, how, how is this even allowed? I mean, it's oh, like, well, if I was- minute, though. So, so yeah, I, that's very surprising that you can't yeah. actually do that. Um, if the person was of color, can they use that? Because most of the time I hear that name, it's a person of color using it. Pretty much every time I hear that name called. Yeah, I mean, I just said. think, you know. And, yeah, but and like, what would you do there if the person said, no, I can use that word. You can't. So I can name my team that if I want. I think you have rules and regulations for participating right. in the fantasy league. And like, the, the, you cannot do this. I mean, 250 team names use anti-LGBTQ slurs. So right. I'm like, Wait. First of all, it's 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 not only hurtful; it's just moronic, and just get rid of the teams. Just say, "Look, you got to either have a new team name, or you're not going to participate yeah, yeah. in the that, fantasy." That seems pretty simple. What was the, What yeah. did the Atlantic say about? I don't know. Well, I mean, it's just like the league is like, ah, we're having a hard time policing it. I'm like, why? You're, yeah, exactly. You can't be a team if you choose to call your team the N word and something else. So, anyway, Come on, people, it's a free country. Unbelievable! It's, Unbelievable. You know. All right, Sam, you have a quiz for us today? Yeah, just a quick little one. Um, we mentioned the Champions League earlier. Sergino Dest scoring uh, his first Champions League goal for Barcelona. His first goal for Barcelona. Um, but in the Barca Dinamo Kiev match this week, Dest, who started, and Conrad de la Fuente, who came on as a sub yeah. to make his uh, first team debut for Barcelona in the 83rd minute became the first two Americans to be on the field uh, at the same time in a Champions League game for the same team since who? And I'll give you the team and the year. It was from okay. Manchester United in 2004. Jovan Karofsky and Tim Howard? Tim Howard. Yeah, Tim Howard, I would have gone. Tim Howard is one. You're right yeah. there. And Karofsky's not the other? Grail, what was your guess? I, I didn't have one. I just said Tim. He Howard. was just piggybacking off. Of <laughs> no, no, no. Do you, do you Tim Howard throw, was my guess. Do you want to throw one out? You got Howard, right? You're both right. Uh, with Howard. Manchester United. Uh, Cameron oh. never played for them, did he? Who? I don't believe so. No, Cameron? Jeff Cameron. Was, no, Jeff Cameron. No, no he no, played no, for no. Stoke. I think. Did another goalkeeper? 
Well, no, they wouldn't be on. No, the they wouldn't be on the, the same, same field time. at the same yeah. time. Yeah, exactly. Uh, who would that be? Was there? I don't it's know. It's a tough one. It's Jonathan Specter. Who? Oh was my god! Yeah, yeah. Kind of a big deal for there. a little while, and kind Ooh, of flamed uh, yeah. out. Yeah. He had the, yeah. How do you guys? But just quickly, how do you think Tim Howard's doing on uh, as Kyle's replacement? Any? Have you watched him at all? Because I've seen him quite a bit. I, I think well. he's doing pretty well. I think yeah. Kyle was the best in the business, though. But I yeah. think Tim's doing quite well. I think he's gotten better. I did yeah. definitely. But, but boy, we put Kyle, speaking of the Mount Rushmore, we put Kyle on the Mount Rushmore of uh, studio analyst. Uh, I should cite my sources for that quiz. I got that information from a Paul Kennedy article in Soccer America. Nice. Oh, one of our sponsors. Good yeah. shout out here. All right, what are we watching this weekend, boys? Chelsea uh, well, Spurs. I'll, yeah, I'll let you do EPL. Chelsea Spurs, that's it. Yeah, that's right. to watch. <laughs> uh, there's, well, if you if you want to broaden your horizons, um, Sassuolo Inter Saturday morning, nine a.m. ESPN Plus should be a good game. Uh, Napoli Roma Sunday, two forty-five p.m. Also ESPN Plus Ooh, should nice. be fun. And then this is sort of a, a, an outlier, but Real Sociedad and Villarreal play at three p.m. on BN Sports on Sunday, uh, and they're both right now in the top three in La Liga. Um, okay. Two surprise teams, so that should be a fun one too. Good stuff. You know, Giroud wants to leave again. I know. Well, he's wanted to leave. Well, then he scores the winning goal against Wren in the uh, Champions League in the 91st minute. It's exactly why you don't want him to leave, but I totally get it. If he jeopardizes his chance to get picked by France because he's sitting on the bench, you know, I I totally get where he's coming from, but Lampard's worried about injuries and wants to keep him. You know, we get both sides of it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, all right. Well, good stuff, guys. Again, thoughts and prayers go out to uh, the family of uh, Diego Maradona, uh, one of the best that ever played the game, uh, if not the best. I guess it's an argue. Well, people will be arguing about for, uh, over beers for uh, for many years to come. But uh, he's on all of our Mount Rushmore. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right, everybody. That's all the time we have on Over the Ball for Sam Griswold and Grail Hallett. I'm Kevin Flynn. We'll talk to you next time on OTB. Mm-hmm.